The second reading this morning comes from Paul's epistle to the church at Corinth. For those of you who've been in the adult education class, this is a book that we think Paul actually wrote, one of the earlier books in the New Testament, made up, we think, mostly of Gentiles or as they would have called themselves, pagans. So listen now for a word from God to the church this day. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters, What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Please pray with me. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Corinthians seem to be divided over who is the better Christian, who gets the better seats at the Eucharistic table, who is the most righteous or the most authentic Christian. Is it people who have had the most ecstatic, charismatic experiences, or those who have evidenced the most straight-laced moral piety? Is it those who have their doctrinal I's and T's crossed, or those observing the healthiest diets, the purest sexual practice? Some had insisted on total freedom in Christ, eating foods, sacrificed to idols, and having sex with prostitutes just to prove that point, total freedom in Christ. Others insisted on specific moral norms as prerequisites for faith in Christ. Still others argued that the evidence of their particular spiritual gifts made it clear that they were closer to God than anyone else. Corinth was a diverse congregation located in a diverse port city, and like a lot of communities made up of people from different backgrounds, 
The Corinthians' diversity threatened to pull them apart at the seams. Fearing a schism or perhaps hoping for a righteous one, a small group of Corinthians loyal to Paul write to the apostle to get him on their side so that he can argue their position. This was a church that Paul loved. Paul had founded this mostly Gentile congregation in the year 51 or 52. We know this with some precision based on his own writing, but also the dates of the rulers that he gives to us. He stayed there for about 18 months, long enough to develop some significant relationships. And yet appealing to Paul as an outside source surely set off even more division in the congregation. One scholar imagines at least one Corinthian saying, personally, I think when ministers leave, they should stay gone, period, and not keep writing back. Another imagines those uh, believing their own teaching superior to Paul's and saying, since we are so gifted, who is fit to teach us? Paul? These differing groups rallied around specific people, some claiming Paul, others rallying around a different apostle named Apollos, others around Cephas, and still others claiming pompously a direct line to Christ. It would be sort of like a group within our congregation calling itself the true followers of Christ. No arrogance there. Apparently, things had deteriorated to such a point that church members were taking each other into the pagan courts to settle moral disputes that they could not settle amongst themselves. And so, with nearly every source of authority being called into question, the church begins to unravel over what seems like a relatively basic question that the church has always had trouble answering. Who belongs? And who gets to determine who belongs? In many ways, we have been fighting over this basic question ever since. Lesbian, gay, and bisexual Christians, do they belong? Transgender Christians, do they belong? Presbyterians have often fought over these issues, over belonging, in terms of ordination and leadership. Women, do they belong in leadership? Before that, it was divorced Christians. Are they righteous enough to belong? We fought it over what Christians believe about evolution or the virgin birth or the nature of Scripture itself. Who gets to belong? In Nazi Germany, it was Christians with Jewish ethnic heritage. Will the church defend their belonging? Colonizers argued over non-Western peoples. Do they belong? The early church over Jews and Gentiles. We're still fighting over it today in our ecumenical battles over infant baptism versus believer's baptism, the nature of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and what even counts as a sacrament to begin with. And underneath all of these questions is this basic question, who gets to belong? Christians have argued these sorts of questions from the inside as if people are clamoring from the outside to become part of our fellowship, as if they are waiting outside for those of us with a little bit of authority to open wide the gates of our admission and let them in. 
And yet a lot of the people that I meet outside the church circle seem to have decided somewhat definitively that they don't belong in church. I'm not a religious enough person, I've been told. Church people are too judgmental and moralistic, others have said. I wouldn't fit into your kind of high achiever environment, one person once told me. I don't have the right clothes for your sort of church, yet another person shared one time. This question of belonging is so often at the root of our problems, which says to me that it is probably at the root of our opportunity as well. Diana Butler Bass, in her book, Christianity After Religion, observes that the nature of Christian belonging has changed in recent years, or at least she says it needs to change. Since the Protestant Reformation, she says, churches tended to form community first around belief, what we believe about baptism and communion and doctrines of faith. This believing then led to certain behaviors, ways of being and acting and living together that are evident, for example, in our liturgy or in our ways of governing ourselves, part of our culture. The combination of these particular beliefs and the behaviors they produce then led to a sense of belonging. We came to the church through belief, then behavior, which led to a sense of belonging. Belief, behavior, belonging. This contributed to continued divisions in the Protestant community, she observes, because Protestants have never been able to agree on everything that we believe. Diana Butler Bass suggests that emerging Christianity is now reversing this sequence. We begin now, she says, with belonging, and then we move to behaving, and finally, maybe, to believing. People don't come to church first looking for particular doctrinal beliefs. They come to get a sense of whether or not they feel as though they belong or they could belong. Churches that connect with people, i.e. churches that have a future, focus first on creating this sense of belonging rather than making sure that people get their doctrines right at the door. The doctrinal theological belief work happens more on the way. Now, Diana Butler Bass argues that this is not a dumbing down of the gospel. It is not the church forsaking its integrity for a permissive, lowest common denominator faith. It is rather the flow of the gospel given to us by Jesus. As she writes, Jesus did not begin with questions of belief. Instead, Jesus' public ministry started when he formed a community. The church began when Jesus called out, follow me. Christianity did not begin with a confession. It began with an invitation into friendship, into creating new community, into forming relationships based on love and service. Confession and doctrine and belief are not unimportant, she says. They are just not the first moves of the gospel. They are its maturity. And yet we in the Christian community struggle with belonging just as sure as they struggled in Corinth nearly 2,000 years ago. Who gets to belong? 
the ethically pure? And who gets to decide what that is? The theologically correct? And whose measuring stick will we use to determine that? The spiritually pious? By whose authority will that be decided? To those early Christians, Paul wrote, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Of course not. Christ has claimed us all, he reminds them, you belong to Christ. I belong to Christ. We belong to Christ together. This makes the church the most non-exclusive group of people ever to exist. At least I think that is the intention made real by the power of the cross. The cross reveals God's self-giving love for the world, love that claims us all regardless of our affinities, our political parties, the neighborhoods where we live, the things that we own, the groups to which we belong. It's all rendered irrelevant when it comes to our belonging with God. It is not that these choices that we make are unimportant. It is rather that the choices that lead to our belonging, that choice is not one that we ever make. It is God's love that is definitive and not our own faithfulness. In this way, God's love shames the wisdom of the world that defines us and them, Democrat and Republican, Christian and other people of faith, conservative, liberal, citizen or alien, gay, straight, bi or trans or queer, of every race and ethnicity. As my friend Joe Clifford writes, human power that defines who belongs and who does not belong is made weak by the love of God revealed in the cross, the love that says you belong, they belong, I belong. And yet, how can I say that in a week when our country is as divided as ever? When people who, who know much better than I are predicting that the impeachment trial of the president was already decided before anyone ever made an opening statement. It was decided, they say, by a cynical politics that has most assuredly said that some of us think that others of us are out to lunch. And the fact that there are Christians on the other side of whichever side of this debate you are on seems to counteract Paul's entire argument. There is no way we can overcome our divisions in the church. Maybe that's true. But I think that's where Paul's remark about the foolishness of the cross actually comes in. In his little-known sermon, The Logic of the Cross, H. Richard Niebuhr, not to be confused with Reinhold Niebuhr, argues that the basic assumption of all humanity, the basic assumption of all of us, is that we are perishing. It is the ultimate assumption, he says, that most of us live by. Most of us organize our lives to avoid death as long as possible. It is for us the end. But Niebuhr argues that the cross calls this lived assumption into question. 
The cross does not lead us to make the opposite assumption, he says, that self-crucifixion is the first law of life. No, no, that is a perversion of the faith. The cross is rather what can lead us to state with certainty that God's preservation of ourselves is actually the first law of our history. Not that we are perishing, but that we are being saved. We are being saved because we belong to Christ, and those who belong to Christ can never be separated from the love of God. And that, according to Niebuhr, makes every bit of difference. When we believe that we are perishing, he writes, we see ourselves in a world surrounded by foes. Sound familiar? The cross does not make our enemies into friends, but it does bring us at least dimly into the realization that foes and friends in our environment are all under the control of the final prevailing love of God. The wisdom of the cross, he says, does not cause us to throw up our hands saying that, well, since we're all under the prevailing love of God, God will handle it. On the contrary, He writes, it asks us to deal with all of these active needs from the point of view of human beings who believe they are being saved instead of believing that they are perishing. I know that's hard to believe. That's why Paul calls it foolishness. It is more reasonable to believe that the powers of death are more real than the love of God. It is more reasonable to believe that we're irrevocably divided in our world, not on the cusp of any coming unity. It is more reasonable to believe that we are headed for disaster, not saving. Who knows? Maybe Paul is actually wrong. And maybe death, for some of us, is more of a motivator. I look around at our city, that's mostly what I see. Hungry, homeless people in every corner, shaming a country of immense wealth self-serving politics at virtually every level of government, children whose education we pay lip service to but who are failing under our watch, a world that is on fire figuratively and literally. The urgency in our world has never been greater. I feel it deep in my heart. And yet at times I wonder if what our world needs alongside our fervent calls to action is not more fear, but rather a community that is already so aware of that visceral power of God's love among us that they can see it in the way that we walk with each other. That visceral, holy love that I believe is what leads to the justice that we long to see in our trauma-plagued city. One of the six great ends of the church, the purposes for which the church was founded according to our Presbyterian tradition, is the exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to the world. I confess, when I first learned of this great end of the church and seminary, it sounded completely ridiculous. With all of our problems, all of our hypocrisy, all of our sin, we can't begin to show the kingdom of heaven to the world, I thought. 
And yet Paul reminds us that a central way to show the kingdom of heaven to the world isn't through our righteousness or our best practice or our purity of thought or action. It is through the way we welcome each other, brothers and sisters or siblings, a Greek word that Paul uses 38 times in this one book. It is the grace that we extend to each other, the only way to build a common life together. We get a chance to practice that grace in the community that is the church. And to practice it not as an abstract philosophy, but as a belief that reaches deep, Niebuhr says, into our emotional and unconscious life, those parts of our humanity that lie beyond the reach of our conceptual thinking. To trust against the logic of survival peddled by the world in the logic of the cross. God's self-giving love that ensures that because of God's love in Christ, you belong. I belong. We belong.